According to this week's guest, recent events related to gun violence in the United States reinforces the need for every employer, organization, or municipality to make sure they are prepared. This is Foreseeable Risk. Hello, everyone, and welcome as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and welcome to episode 41. My guest this week is Steve Cremando. He's a subject matter expert and trainer specialized in human factors and behavioral sciences in homeland and corporate security. This week, Steve and I discuss how organizations can prepare for violence in the workplace, how sticky phrases can help drive home key messages in high-stress situations, and he has an interesting take on the fact that every crisis has a human aspect to it. We'll get to my conversation with Steve, but first, here's a word from Ashley from the Resilience Think Tank. Welcome to the Resilience Think Tank. I'm Ashley Guzman, and along with my co-founders, we created the Resilience Think Tank in 2021, dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. As founders, we're based in Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and have a combined experience of over 87 years of helping organizations to become resilient. We are committed to ensuring diverse voices are included in making communities and organizations more resilient. I hope you'll join us. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you here. For those who joined the Resilience Think Tank webinar on Ukraine back in May, uh, they already might be aware of who you are. But for those who didn't join that, take a minute and tell the listeners about yourself. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me so much. Um, If we haven't met before, my background is actually in clinical psychology, but I've worked the past 32 years at kind of the intersection of uh, human behavior and emergency management, business continuity, um, and security. Uh, My mission, I guess, in doing my work is to help leaders and decision makers make accurate assumptions about how people are likely to behave in different sorts of crisis situations and, you know, really across the whole timeline of a pre-incident, incident, and post-incident. And I guess the most rewarding thing about that for me has been that it seems to be a missing piece. You know, we very often go to technology or other sorts of solutions to look at, you know, how we respond or prepare for different sort of crises. When you really get to the heart of it, almost every crisis does involve people. And to be able to share with, uh, with audiences, share with our clients really what the people piece looks like, uh, it makes a big difference. And I'm, I'm always happy to share that work. And I've shared it, as I said, for the last few decades with all kinds of organizations and all kinds of communities. You know, I've had a couple of opportunities to speak, and you're just a brilliant mind. And I, I love your perspective on things. Uh, and you're right, it's often overlooked. I know you have some events coming up throughout the summer. Just take a minute before we get into the content of the interview here to talk about those things. Yeah, so I appreciate that. We have um, a few times a year what we we refer to as our institutes, and they give participants really a chance in several weeks to take a series of one-hour classes on, on different specific topics related to the human element in disasters and emergencies. It's referred to as our Homeland Security Human Factors Institute. And the Summer Institute starts July 13th. It runs through the uh, August 31st this year. And something unique we're doing this year is we broke the curriculum into two components. One is uh, foundational programs like the first class, which is human behavior and disasters and emergencies. 
And then in the uh, later part of the summer, we get into more advanced topics, uh, even one that has to do with climate anxiety and how we look at the effects of uh, the changing climate on psychology and emergency management. So it's a good opportunity for practitioners across a lot of disciplines and different skill levels to really kind of start bringing an awareness and uh, some focus into the human element uh, to their work and planning, preparing, and even exercising. Now, this is a timely conversation because we're getting bombarded in the news now with mass shootings. Uh, The most recent at the time of this recording, or at least the most recent highly publicized one was the story from Uvalde, Texas. That goes back at Uh, to May 24th. But since then, and it's only been a couple of weeks, uh, in the United States, according to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 20 shootings where four or more people have been injured or killed. So what they define as a mass shooting event. So in that span, just a couple of weeks, that's 17 more dead and 88 wounded. So from a practical standpoint, let's talk about how that affects organizations and what organizations should be doing to make sure they're as prepared as possible for a potential violent situation in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the numbers uh, that we've had, and, and just this week, early this week, the FBI released their active shooter report for all of the 2021 activity, and that showed this very dramatic jump up from the year before. And we've seen that almost a 20% or more jump year to year to year. And if we go back even a decade from about 2016 to present, we know the numbers have, have doubled and then on their way to doubling again. So this, this has to reinforce the point to employers and all sorts of committees and organizations that um, this is not a, an if, this is a when. You know, we, we need to be in a high level of, of preparedness. And we're going to talk today, I hope, about what that means. Um, because no organization and no geography can really feel a sense of, of being immune from this sort of problem. This using kind of the language of OSHA, today is a foreseeable risk. This is mm. you know, not a, a black swan event. Um, the other thing, though, besides this reinforcing kind of the, the reality uh, of how exposed we are to this risk and it's growing, is the fact that we, we definitely know there is a bit of contagion and there's often copycat elements to these crimes. Right. And I have to say this, and, and it's a real dilemma, and it's difficult to, to say, and I don't in my presentations, everyone want to sound politically biased one way or the other. The discussions going on right now about um, changes to gun law, very important discussions to have. They'll fall out. However, hopefully the American people want and need them to fall out. But there is this kind of intervention dilemma sometimes in which when perpetrators feel that uh, the door may be closing, and many of these perpetrators of mass violence have been planning for months or years. There's actually evidence of some cases where people plan for several years. Where they feel their window of opportunity may be closing can accelerate their timeline for an attack. So it's a very weird dynamic to be in where there's this need to do things and the doing of those things actually may speed someone along their pathway towards violence. So this is a time of really, really increased risk for communities and employers. Um, The numbers are saying that, but the way we're responding to it also potentially, you know, kicks the hornet's nest. It's really tricky business. You said something, and I hadn't planned on asking you this question, but this is the second presentation that I've been in with you where you intentionally let people know that you're not trying to be political. And, and I appreciate that. And I think I might have even asked you this question the last time we talked and was on a different topic. 
But how do you have a conversation about mass shootings without it turning political? So the way I start the conversation is to say what I've just said. I said, I'm going to try to remain. And the, the operative word here is try. We all obviously have our, our biases uh, to remain politically agnostic and, and not take a side. My goal, and if I do this well, is to focus on the behavior and communication that's associated with the shooter and the shootings that gives an opportunity for individuals, organizations, and communities to identify, hopefully pre, pre-incident, identify individuals on the pathway to violence and to have the right systems and measures in place to kind of mitigate that risk if and when it happens. You can do that and still say, you know, we know there are very, very strong feelings, in fact, passions on both sides of these arguments, both sides of these issues. Mm-hmm. When we get pulled by those passions to either of the polls, it doesn't seem that much progress gets made. We really get caught up in a swirl of emotion. Right. We need to be somewhat dispassionate about what is a very powerful and emotional topic. We're talking about the lives of our loved ones, our children, ourselves. But if we go into the conversation and say, listen, let's try to suspend that. Let's focus on the behavior, communication, other things we need to do. You can interpret that through your own filter, but I'm going to purposely try. And I think we should purposely try in any conversations to play it right up the middle uh, Mm -hmm. where we can. I I like that. And that's very smart. You mentioned something that I hadn't thought about, and I think that's a good lesson for all of us. Even those of us who are in this day in and day out are going to miss a detail here or there, and that's why it's good to always be learning. I was focused on organizations. What do organizations need to do? And you mentioned also municipalities need to do that planning too. So let me ask you this. Does geography matter? Does it matter where you are Uh, Are organizations or municipalities that are more urban, are they more likely to see violence or are those in a rural setting just as likely? So most of these actually play out in what we would think about as suburban environments. In the inner cities, there is a lot of, there can be a lot of gun violence. Some some U.S. cities in particular, you know, are, are plagued with this. Uh, it tends to be a different sort of violence. It tends to be often gang related or interpersonal grudges or you know, it's fights between people, different dynamics. In the more rural areas, two things happen. One is there's sort of a different um, level of, of relationship with guns. And two, population density changes radically. So if we take a basic, the most basic concept in an active shooter, very often shooters are looking for target-rich environments where they're going to have a high casualty count. Mm. When you're way out in rural areas, other than finding the school or the house of worship, um, they tend not to be, you know, the population kind of distribution doesn't lend itself very often to to mass shootings in the same way. All geographies have had exposure to this. You can think of places in very rural uh, communities. You can think of places in inner cities as well. So none are immune, but it tends to be more prevalent in what we would think about as, as suburban communities. All right, well, let me ask you a question about organizations that uh, might be in a, in a multi-tenant building, an office building where they're on one floor and there might be you know, any number of uh, other organizations also in the same building. Who has responsibility for making sure response protocols are in place in a situation like that? And I'm, and I'm speaking particularly around active shooter or other types of violence. Is that the responsibility of the landlord? Is it the security team's responsibility? Or is it the individual tenants who are responsible for their own response protocol? 
So it is a shared responsibility. Um, and the problem is that it needs to be harmonized because if it gets siloed, I think about building managers. Very often there's professional trade groups and associations, even regulators who say, you know, um, multi-tenant buildings, here's a code or a regulation in our city or jurisdiction that you uh, must follow about active preparedness. And uh, maybe at a, at a minimum, the building management once a year hosts some sort of workshop and employees from the tenant organizations can come or not come and, and be read into the plan. Uh, but it gets kind of siloed. Then if you think, and let's just around number 10, there's 10 tenants in this, this structure. Yeah. Uh, they may have varying degrees of plans from nothing to very sophisticated plans. But if they don't get communicated, they could contradict the building plan. They could contradict the neighbor next door. They could literally be tripping over each other. And obviously, this is going to mess things up. So this harmonization, this coming together as a tenant association with building management and actually with local law enforcement and other players to say, listen, uh, we all get this. We all have exposure. And you know what? It's interesting because the nature of your tenant, some tenants may have a much, much higher exposure uh, to, to violence than another tenant. They may actually be somewhat of a lightning rod for that. So everyone has this kind of need to sit down around the table and say, you know, first at the planning meeting, let's look at, let's be somewhat transparent and share each other's active shooter plans, see where they work together, see where we can harmonize these so that when there is a, a sign or a signal or a code in the building, we all know what that means. We all know what we should do. We all, sh- we all know what we should expect from local law enforcement, and we're not tripping over each other. But no organization should assume that someone else has their back, that it's building management, that it's the local community, that it's other tenants. This is a shared obligation. You have to do your thing and then communicate your thing and coordinate your thing with all those around you. Um, and, you know, depending on how your building is and your setup is, you know, that may involve a lot of players, but this pays very, very big dividends. It even pays good dividends in prevention, because if we think about the pre-incident phase, thinking about someone who is involved in a potential shooter involved in a kind of pre-operational surveillance or hostile surveillance of the site mm-hmm. may have his eyes on one tenant, uh, but other tenants notice this. You know, how does that get communicated? How do we actually work together to prevent, not just respond when a shot's fired? And there may actually be some points post-incident where how would we coordinate a return to the building? How might we coordinate a memorial service for people who were injured or lost in the shooting in our building that really benefits by it being coordinated amongst all the tenants along with building management? So bottom line, shared obligation. There's so many follow-ups that have come to mind based on what you said. Um, The first thing I want to say is, so this is a lot about collaboration. And those of us either in the resilience world or crisis management world within an organization, obviously we have our own internal collaboration. But now in a multi-tenant situation, now we need to collaborate with the property management team, security, and the other tenants So as you said, to make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah. And the more that those plans, policies, or even the awareness is aligned, the better result we get across the whole timeline, pre-incident, incident response, and post-incident recovery. But uh, any one tenant going their own way or having nothing in place, it actually puts everybody else at risk. So there is a real necessity to make the effort to harmonize those plans and reach out to the other partners. 
because as I say, the, the one tenant who's the weakest link can compromise all the other good plans that other tenants have put together. And if someone's listening and they think, ah, you know what, I don't have to worry about active shooter or anything like that, the same rules apply would uh, if it was a situation where uh, there was a tornado warning. Uh, you, you have to understand the same principles for how to respond, whether it's going to be gathering in the parking garage under the building or what, whatever that turns out to be. Yeah, it's an all hazards approach. And to kind of bring it back a little bit to active shooter uh, in the security industry over the last few years, the the evolving uh, national standard that was actually developed by ANSI, the American National Standards Institute, is known as the American National Standard in Workplace Prevention and Intervention. It was developed by SHRM, the Society for Human Resources Management, along with ASIS. And in that, they have made this very strong pitch to change the language from active shooter to active assailant. And that's very much in line with your, your last point, which is it doesn't matter uh, if it's a firearm, it's, a, it's an edge weapon, it's a knife, it's someone using a vehicle in an attack, uh, obviously to people in the street, out front, a lobby, a ground floor of a building. People need to know how to react to all of these things. And by extension, your tenant organizations need to be thinking about harmonizing those plans across a wide spectrum of hazards, not just shooter. Uh, but shooter is a great way to start because it's timely, because it has a sense of urgency, and because there's other partners like local law enforcement who are happy to come in and do a workshop for you or observe an exercise or help facilitate an exercise. It, it becomes a real good rallying point that maybe organizations could leverage later for how do we harmonize the rest of our emergency plans as well. I had a, a guest on some time ago who used the phrase, luck is not a strategy, and it's certainly not a strategy in, in this situation. There are a couple of um, really critical pieces to the overall response strategy. One of them is communication and the other is training. Uh, And particularly in situations like this, where some of the responses can be quite nuanced. Talk about the difference between a couple of phrases that might get misused and what they mean and how a response might differ in a lockdown situation versus a shelter in place situation, because they're not necessarily the same thing. Now, a lockdown in the most basic elements means no one comes or goes, right? So we get word uh, through some notification system that there's an incident down the block in our neighborhood and uh, local law enforcement or others have advised we lock down. So we're closing, locking the building up. We can go about our work. We can go about our classes. If we're in a school, we go about our business, but no one's going outside. No one's coming in until we get the all clear. Um, shelter in place is get in, stay in, and tune in. And you need to you need to seek shelter. You need to find cover and concealment. You need to go to those safe rooms. You need to think about places to reduce your potential exposure. And that's usually used at a more imminent level when the when the threat is, is you know more proximal. It's right at your door or it's in your building already. You have shots fired. We sound some sort of alarm. We give a notification, and it's shelter in place. We want to be behind that heavy door with it locked, barricading with furniture, all of those kind of things, because Mm -hmm. the assumption is the threat is now upon us. It's not nearby. It's not down the block or in our neighborhood. It's in our structure. It's in our midst. We have to, we're surviving now. So there is a difference in some of those. And there's even difference, you know, when we think about the most basic formulas like run, hide and fight, Mm -hmm. uh, different ways that that needs to be interpreted and shared with the workforce, because even those ideas are not very straightforward, you know, for, for many people. 
And it's a, a good point. We have to, to remember that for the most part, most of the people who are going to be participating in the response that we put together are not going to be given a second thought to this. This is going to be foreign to most of the people. So communicating is really, really important and communicating uh, some of the nuance that we just talked about. And you used a phrase for shelter in place, get in, stay in, tune in. Catchphrases like that are really important and can really help uh, with that communication of process, right? Yeah. You want to have phrases that are sticky. You know, the, the way we operate under stress. I mean, even their basic neuroscience level is, is we're not doing our best thinking. You want things that are, that are going to be so memorable that people could easily fall back to and say, well, I took the active shooter training or workplace violence training a year ago. Oh man, what is it? You know, what is it I was supposed to do? What did they tell me a year ago? And you want those few things to jump out. You know, so very often we think about run, hide, fight. The way mm -hmm. we really promote that is run means time and distance time and distance between you and the threat. Hide means cover and concealment. It means, you know, cover something large and heavy between you and the threat, concealment, the, the bad guy can't see you. And fight means uh, distract, disrupt, disarm. So we want these very memorable ways that kind of, you know, either through alliteration or the simplicity of the phrases that are really sticky, where someone walks out of there and if you asked them a week later, you know, what did run mean? Time and distance. That's all I got out of the class. That's great. If you got that out of the class, that's a beautiful thing. If you remember right. that a week later. So yeah, we're always looking for ways to make those, those concepts stick because under stress is not a great time for, you know, really activating memory. No, you're exactly right. And uh, from time to time, I've been involved in different theatrical things and I'm okay at learning lines. Like I had to do a 20 minute monologue one time um, and it was very theatrical and so forth. And I, I knew my lines front and back until the light went on and I stood in front of the audience and I had the stress and the first line, first line, completely gone, mm -hmm. just gone. Once I sort of calmed down and, and, you know, thought about it, I was able to get it. And then from there it was fine. And I just sort of treated it like a dramatic pause, but in a crisis situation like this, a dramatic pause can be the difference between whether you're injured or worse, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, these incidents evolved very quickly. Um, historically, the FBI has told us most are five minutes or less. And once the shooting begins, typically another person is shot every 15 seconds. Hmm. So we really can't lose any time to denial and decision or disbelief that this thing is happening. You have to be able to go and switch into response mode, you know, immediately. That is a brilliant point, too. We don't have time to send a Teams meeting invite and wait for people to come into a room and figure this out. The response protocol needs to be right now. Yeah, and you're working against um, a lot of human nature and physiology, which is to, I mean, think about, especially pre-9-11, if you had a fire drill at work, the, the natural tendency would be to try to like pretend you didn't hear the bell and stay at your desk and hide and not evacuate and so forth. There's a lot of different things going on, whether they're cognitive biases or our physiology that, you know, in terms of our fight and flight response, that in some ways can work against us. So you have to really have the proper response literally at the front of someone's mind almost all the time, which is a difficult thing because our nature is not to want to think about the thing that doesn't seem probable to us or things that are uncomfortable to us. So to imagine that when 
the shots fired, people are going to know instantly and follow the plans is a little bit of a stretch. So we need to do all the tricks we can to, to make the action steps memorable, to have them front of mind, because people otherwise under extreme stress can have real difficulty recalling those things. One of the human nature things that I suppose we deal with here is that people don't want to sound an alarm until they're 100% sure that something very bad is happening because they don't want to sound a false alarm. And uh, that can be a problem. And I'm going to kind of leverage that into to talking about mass notification tools and things like that. Uh, I have been part of uh, organizations uh, leading a crisis management effort where we have sent out mass notifications to people in London uh, after um, attacks at, at various parts of the city, making them aware of what's going on. And oftentimes what we hear is people will say, you're bombarding me with too many messages. And our response to that is we would rather annoy you than ignore you. So mm -hmm. I don't know, what's the right approach here? So you're working against the concept, um, again, and, and this is the, the fun part of my job is talking about human behavior. We're working against a concept that's known as task saturation. Mm. And when we are in a high level of stress, we have somewhat of a reduced capacity to take on new information. So if you think about the word itself, saturation from your high school or college physics or chemistry class, it means that that sponge or that cloth can't soak up one more piece of information. It has to displace something, it has to push things out. And uh, when we start getting hit by too much information, and that's certainly subject to the person's perception, what too much is, um, they start having to, you know, almost triage, well, what's, what should I make out of all these incoming messages? Now, on one hand, we may have a dynamic situation in which there's updates. Shooter was at the corner of, uh, you know, 10th and 42nd. And now the situation has changed. We need to update you. But the problems with the major problem with task saturation <clears throat> at its end state is that you can get people totally lock up from a kind of information overload. And the thing that happens here, and this is an important message when you think about your concept of notification, how much is too much, as task saturation increases, situational awareness decreases. And as task saturation increases, executional errors increase. People make mistakes. Now, this applies even to, Mark, for example, your teams, your business continuity professionals, your crisis man professionals who are in maybe a GSOC or a command center, as they're getting bombarded with information during an actual crisis, there is the potential for this task saturation effect and that could be very costly. As I said, if people are losing situational awareness and making executional errors because they're overloaded, we are making a bad thing worse. So we do have to be very selective in messaging. The length and the, the kind of phrasing um, has to be real to the point and you know super clear. The frequency and the you know the the updates that we give. We need to think through carefully. Is it really necessary right now to make another communication? Uh, because I know this can start working against me. It's actually not just annoying. It actually, from a, a psychological standpoint, could start to take someone in the wrong direction where either they say, I can't handle this, I'm ignoring the messages, or from a triage standpoint, they start losing the ability to kind of think through what they are starting to feel like is too much information. So we're always working from how do I take the fire hose down to the garden hose? 
How do I streamline the information from flooding people to just that very narrow stream of information that's so relevant to the moment? So that feedback's important. And as I said, there's kind of a psychological discussion or, you know, or, or understanding around how that works. That is very interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but you're right. You don't want to say to somebody, uh, you know, somebody comes back and says, well, I didn't catch the update where I was supposed to, you know, leave this area. And then you go back and, and, and you say, no, it was in the 17th message that we sent you, you know, that yeah. that's too much. That's not going to work. Yeah. So we have to be very, very surgical about the messaging. Now to the other point, which actually kind of parlays back to your, one of your earlier questions, it's really important to have like messaging templates done ahead of time, because in that crisis that's unfolding so quickly, there may not be a lot of time to craft the initial messages. So where you can have templated messages um, for at least the initial response, the initial notification, that could be very beneficial as well. Steve, this is fascinating stuff. And, and like I said at the top of the episode, every time I talk to you, I'm impressed with your depth of knowledge. Thank you for, for doing this. If people want to learn more about the services that you offer or certainly uh, about your classes that you have coming up starting in July, how can they get in touch with you? So the very best way is simply on our website. It's behavioralscienceapps.com. Oh, and you'll see a banner right on the homepage about the Summer Institute. It's a really fun time. We get, we get such diverse uh, participants really from around the world. They bring different perspectives, different questions, different ways of looking at the behavioral aspect of all the things we do. And it's a critically important missing piece. I mean, Mark, it's, it's fun to have these conversations, but in some ways we literally just scratch the surface of, of human behavior in some of these topics. Uh, so it's a great way to learn more. So on our, on our website, behavioralscienceapps.com is probably the best way to find out more. Thanks, Dale. You're a, th- a friend to the Resilience Think Tank, and, and uh, you're always welcome to come back to the Resilient Journey podcast. Uh, like I said, I-, I learned something every time, and it was great to have you here. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks so much for having me back. I really appreciate that. And I hope this has uh, been information that people can put to use. I want to thank Steve Cremando for being my guest today. A lot of good insights there. And every time I hear him speak, I learn something new. I'd encourage you to to check out his website, behavioralscienceapps.com, and learn more about the Summer 2022 Homeland Security Human Factors Summer Institute. A big thanks, as always, to my co-founders over at the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring The Resilient Journey. And we have a lot of great guests coming up. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.